This podcast is brought to you by EnergyX. Are you tired of paying huge rates to the big cloud providers? Are you worried about being booted off a cloud platform if your company doesn't meet their ever-shifting standards? Ready to step up your data security and disaster recovery game? Well, ladies and gentlemen, your new cloud is ready. Introducing xCloud, the scalable, resilient computing cloud that is also actually affordable. It's high-performance compute for half the cost. HPC for HTC. xCloud from Red Team is opening a beta program for new cloud computing customers, and that means you, my friend. The xCloud is powered by the XMDC Immersion Cooled Modular Data Center from EnergyX. I've seen this data center in operation, and it is a total game changer. So if you want more information about the beta launch, go to the URL in the description. Type in promo code BETA, B-E-T-A, for 50% off of your first instance. And so the URL is going to be digitalwildcutters.com forward slash energy. X. This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's up, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of Rolling Gas Startups Podcast. I'm here. It's not every day that I'm here with somebody that I've known for longer than most people in this space. Marty and I go way back. I don't know. We've known each other since probably 2013, 2014. Yeah. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't even remember how we met. Do you remember? Yeah, I think I do. I think I cold called you. Really? I think so. I think you were doing a startup with GDSware. Yeah. And at that time... I was with Signet Interactive, who no longer exists, doing, um, trying to do an oil and gas division for our marketing services. Oh, yes. Yes. I, yeah. Yes. That's how long ago it was, I, remember? And I came and- Who's the guy who worked over there? Uh, Chris Mulgrew? Yes. He, uh, no, there's a different guy, different guy. Jeff James. Different guy. I don't know. Different guy. You know him. I know him. Because it was like- it was after I had left GDS where he'd offered me a job. Really? Yeah. He was like, come work with Signet. It was when they were still going. And, uh, and then we, we had hosted our first event with Digital Wildcatters years later. I was like, yeah, probably not going to be fit for me, whatever. Um, and he was just like, oh, yeah, you're glad you didn't join. Things that really didn't work out well for us. <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> it's like, all right, good. I think I know who you're talking good about. To, good to know. Uh, Rich. That's who Rich. Rich. Yes. That's who it was. Yeah. He's a great, great guy. I like him a lot. Yeah, Rich Rich is wow. awesome. So for those of you who didn't make it to Energy Tech Night, okay, see, Marty was a winner. Yes. With Industrial Data Lab. Thank you so, for having us. What I love, what I love about seeing, like you guys just closed around the funding, you just won Energy Tech Night, you know, I think you're getting a lot of publicity, a lot of investors are reaching out. And what I love about this is that not many people know outside of like me, Aaron, your wife, how long you've been grinding to like solve a singular problem. Right? Yes. And I think that you have dove deeper into a sector than I've seen any founder ever. And you have picked apart this thing. You have got inside their minds and understood exactly what their challenges are. And you're like, I'm going to crack this. And like you guys have finally, like you have cracked it in like the best kind of way. Yes. And it was so cool just to see like I've seen, I saw the very first iterations back when you guys were doing stuff, um, you know, like Excel or Google Sheets, however you're doing it, and then see what you guys had at Energy Tech Night. And then for the crowd to also just to appreciate <laughs> that at the same time was just a really, really cool moment. So I'm excited to dive in for everybody who's listening here. 
what what is it high level? Like, what do you guys do? So Industrial Data Labs, we're an applied artificial intelligence company, and we're solving the manual, TDS, uh, highly technical sales and sourcing inefficiency problem within industrial markets. And so how we do that is we're building proprietary artificial intelligence. And our main objective is how do we surface this AI um, to gain the most value for our customers? And then we're surfacing it inside of workflows. So existing workflows. So I think if I understand it correctly, when you're in, you, you guys are servicing particularly just the valve market right now, right? So pipes, valves, fittings, and flanges. Okay, and so then our customers, yep, and dis distribution and manufacturers okay. uh, are our customers. And so so if somebody is ordering or they're trying to put in an order to either a distributor or to a manufacturer, the way that I understand it is they send in either an email or a spreadsheet attached to an email with like 20,000 lines of technical specifications of what they're looking for, right? And then the way that it's done currently is somebody will take that spreadsheet and then manually go through, and I'm guessing they're checking their system to see if it's available. They're checking to see if probably a bunch of other things. How long is that? Pro is, that is that days? Is it weeks? Is it? Long? So it depends. So there's really two use cases that we're solving for. So one is going to be the bill of material use case, which you described. So, hey, we want to build this project. The project is three years away or we need this quote finalized in six months. Um, a CAD system literally will output a spreadsheet and it will list 10,000 pipes, valves, fittings, and flanges. And each of the descriptions, so if you figure what is a valve description or a pipe description, so it's essentially um, a series of attributes defining what something is. So for a valve, the attributes can be a type, size, pressure class. Um, all the way to body material, trim material, the uh, end connection, the operator. So is it hand wheel? Um, Maybe ID, OD, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, all the yeah. Um, specifications, even supplemental, what type of paint, right? Mm -hmm. And you have 10,000 lines dealing with that technical information and you're receiving it in a spreadsheet. So pretend you're an inside sales rep. I'm going to email you this spreadsheet. 10,000 lines with all those attributes associated with it. Now, if you're kind of a part of one of these distributors and manufacturers today, you're really in, involved in this industry in two ways. Either you're fairly new or you're very experienced. If you're experienced, you can get through those maybe in eight hours, 10 hours. But the first step in really solving this large bill of material problem is these valve attributes or these equipment attributes live in one cell of a spreadsheet, right? Mm. So it's almost impossible to sort through that spreadsheet unless you go line item by line item in your ERP. So what people do is these inside sales rep, and depending upon the inside sales team or the rep particularly, they've created templates. And so they'll take a spreadsheet, right? You'll take a spreadsheet from me. If I'm Shell, I send it to you and you, take all of the data in that spreadsheet and you organize it in another spreadsheet, right? So that can take a full day. Sometimes it takes three days just to organize one project, one spreadsheet. And then your next step is to Google search every line item. Inside literally of the, Google search? Literally go in your ERP, go yeah. into where you can search for items and you're typing in every item. Unless you've memorized every product code for every line item, right? 
that takes forever. So what the problem is today is there's distributors. So we have a customer who, who's only getting to 50% of these large bill of materials coming in. And you can imagine only getting to 50% so of 50, five, 50, 10 Yeah, 50% yeah, of inbound business. And it's like, we just literally can't right. tend to the rest of it. And it's these guys are tasked to grow 3X over the next five years. Well, how do you do that? If you yeah. hire more inside sales reps, what happens? You got to train them. Yeah. It takes a couple of years to train on technical data. Really? You yeah. steal from another company, possibly. Also, who wants those jobs? <laughs> right. <laughs> if, if, I, I blow my brains out if I had to do that every day, <laughs> if I'm being honest. <laughs> I actually heard a story uh, of one of our, one of the customers that we're fairly close with were having a hard time recruiting for some of these positions. And they had their recruiter take applications and go to Chick-fil-A and hand out applications through the drive-through to try to recruit these Chick-fil-A members because they're detailed organized yeah. to get them in, the, in their inside sales team. But it's hard. It's hard to recruit. And then the interesting thing that we're finding is so there's a lot of younger, ambitious people starting to become management VPs, right? And they're aggressive. They want to make money. They want to grow their particular company's market share. And they're looking for all sorts of technology to do that because they know the one hole in their organization is increasing the size of their inside sales team. And how do you do that effectively? How do you do that efficiently? It's, it's very difficult for them to do. And so you have ambition with a lot of obstacles to it. And so technology, you know, and what we've seen from our customers is kind of the answer to solve a lot of their, their problems and get them to where they want to go. So you guys are taking this super tedious and, and time-consuming process that is a massive bottleneck for these companies, and then what do you, how are you applying the technology and how are you guys doing it? So our main objective right now um, is surfacing the value of the AI, right? And so the other component to that is the requirement that we've set for our company is to do that inside of existing workflows. So you've got to do that inside of an email or inside of a spreadsheet where you're not having your customers try to adopt a new platform, Smart. a new box, which makes it terribly Just difficult. Go to, go to where they're working. So Right. Yeah. So here's a challenge. So we're building proprietary artificial. So our AI is ours. We're building it from the ground up. Um, and it's very, very difficult. But one of the things that you need to do in order to build the type of AI that we are is we need to capture thousands of these bill of materials, right? We cannot go and scrape the internet for these descriptions because they're not real world descriptions. So the AI would be off if we just scraped the internet. Yeah. So we've worked with our customers to gather thousands of these bill of materials. And well, here's the challenge. So each of these bill of materials, whether it's from Saudi Aramco or someone here in North America is different. So descriptions are different. The design is different. And so how do you create a way to automate the ability to capture not only the spreadsheet, ingest it, but then take the difference between the descriptions that we need out of those spreadsheets at scale and stuff that's not relevant to the problem that we're solving, right? Mm. And so we were working on that for two months and we got, I don't want to say lucky, but we've been really fortunate in the progression of our AI to where our AI team is, and we can talk about them, top 1% of 1%, and we are really lucky to find them. But we're able to essentially 
kind of use our existing model to train another model in order to ingest PDF spreadsheets, whatever, and understand the difference between a description that's valuable and something that's not, maybe a location of a plant or a specific address or other types of language that are contractual languages. So we can take all of these spreadsheets um, and do hundreds of thousands, if not millions of descriptions. And then we have a team of labelers and they sit and we do, we're doing a 10,000 batch um, labeling uh, project right now. And they'll go and that's through. that's used to train the model. Train the AI. Yeah. So they'll literally log into our um, called Label Studio and we've got hundreds of thousands of descriptions and then they'll go, well, this is the size, this is the pressure and literally trains the AI just for this industry. Jeez. And so going to where their workflow is, is what y'all do, is that built into plugins in Gmail, Outlook, Excel, things like that? So it depends on the particular company. So um, right now for if we use the Excel example, so depending upon the company and how far we make it with their IT team is right now we can do an Excel add-in where you can essentially just highlight the descriptions, click a button, a sheet pops up, all the descriptions are organized for you. And then the AI will um, search your ERP or a data set to find the right product codes for that particular description. Or we're doing it another way just to start off with some users where we weren't able to um, really work with their IT team so far is where you can drag and drop the Excel spreadsheet. The spreadsheet comes up in a, um, a good user interface, do the same activity, highlight the cells, click a button, and it's done. So really, you guys have thought about it. No matter how you want to kind of play with this data, you have sort of some sort of solution there. We're, we, we're working towards the right solution. So we've yeah. been really lucky with the customers that we have. We meet with them every week to go, okay, what do you think of this? Use this for the next week. And they say, hey, this is good, this is bad. Then we'll use our team to iterate based off of their feedback just to try to figure out the right solution for not only our customers, but for the industry. So let's go, let's go more into, I have so many questions, but let's go more into like your background in, in terms of like the solving this problem. Yes. Right, like maybe the best way to phrase it is like, what have you learned? Because I know you've learned a lot. And I know there's been a billion different iterations and, and, and pivots and just as you kind of uncover new things and new learning that kind of guides the direction of the company. But I, what I love about that is that you have embodied resilience and like perseverance of like, no, we're gonna, like, we know that there's a problem here. We know it's a massive opportunity. And I'm not gonna let the fact that we haven't cracked it yet deter <laughs> us from figuring it out. One day this will be yeah, figured out. Yeah. And I'm really hoping it's up. So um, what have we learned is the question. Yeah, what have you learned from like the beginning to, I mean, just to now? Um, so the one thing, the one hypothesis that I had that turned out not to be true was that um, these industries appear kind of antiquated from the outside looking in. They appear that they don't want to adopt new technology. Mm -hmm. um, and I found out probably in the last couple of years that that is absolutely not true. Uh, what I think is the problem is, is if you take a tech startup and you start either on the West Coast or the East Coast, you're gonna have a lot of opportunity in order to secure capital to really grow your startup and solve whatever problem or use case you think you're going to solve initially, right? Until you pivot into something else. Um, but what I think is true is a lot of startups from the coasts don't spend a lot of time 
in these industries who mm-hmm. need their technology in order to truly understand every element of the use case so that they can build the proper technology to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. I think what happens is people from the coast will come in with a technology, pitch the technology. These guys will give it a shot and then they'll go either it doesn't work out and when we get into the details of why, but they have a bad taste in their mouth from technologists on the coast coming in and trying to transform their company and spend a lot of money and it doesn't work. And these guys want technology and they yeah. want to solve a lot of these problems. I just don't think that people are willing to do it. It's not to say that somebody can't come in and, 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 and crack the code and land upon something, but you're definitely the outlier. And I've seen that countless times of people who come in, they build a widget, they think it's applicable oil and gas. They really don't spend a ton of time to dig deep and understand that the use cases, right? And they're just like, well, we've done this in X, we've done this in X, like we can come in and do the same thing in oil and gas. And for a variety of reasons, some may be technical, some may be lack of understanding, some could just be cultural, the fact that they just don't know how yeah. this industry works. Um, they fall flat one. on their face and then they go back to to kind of whatever they were doing. The same is also true of, you can, you can say, you know, kind of broader entrepreneurs in like the Houston area and a lot of them are, you know, in oil and gas or in energy. And that persona is different. It's just different than the coast. You know, you're dealing with people who are typically have spent a decade in like their industry, they spent a decade in oil and gas, and then they go out and they identify a problem, they scratch their own itch, and then they, you know, go and and build something. Whereas the coast, it's, you know, your people are building stuff right out of school and right. You may not have any sort of industry. They start a startup and then look for a problem to solve, right? Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. So, no, I've seen the same thing. I think some of the best companies that have ever come out of uh, this space have been built by people who've come from the industry. I agree. I think there's there's such a deeper knowledge in terms of where technology is applicable, applicable and truly solves a problem, right? Yeah. Even Even in solving this problem. So, you know, I go through, I think, on the... Uh, presentation at the tech night in Oklahoma City. It's been people trying to solve this problem for 25 years. It's the same thing every time. Let's build a platform, right? Let's disrupt distribution. And what we'll do is we'll work with the end user and we'll come up with this platform and we can scale the platform through the end users. Then what we'll do is we'll onboard their suppliers, right? Well, how many suppliers do you think an end user has? I've seen that so many times, by the way. (laughs) Tens of thousands, right? And then the way we'll onboard suppliers at scale is we'll get their contact information. We'll get maybe some of their data and we'll send them an email. Hey, Shell's looking to buy from this platform, right? So that email goes into spam, likely, right? So no one sees it. Or a lot of these manufacturers and distributors have a small technical team. So if a small technical team, you think they're going to go and build out their data in order to fit your platform of which no one's buying anything at all. And so you'll get that first kind of bit of traction you think from the end user. And then once you try to onboard these suppliers, not gonna happen. And then you got distribution in North America. They are not gonna let you come in and take any piece of their pie. It's just not gonna happen. And so these platforms, whether it be e-commerce or workflow platforms, They'll get a lot of press. These uh, West Coast, East Coast VCs will be interested in platform. They love platforms. Yeah. And then just over the course of time, just don't work out. And I think what's happening is companies want to disrupt the market. That, this market is not going to be disrupted. You need to build technology 
that provides value for each segment of the market and each customer within that market, or you're not going to get anywhere. It's just not going to happen. And y'all, you 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 flipped that, didn't you? Didn't you go to the manufacturers, master distributors, and distributors and say, hey, we want to solve this problem and started with them yes. first? So we took um, a contrarian position. So most people start at the end user and go, hey, look, the, these are the people with the most money. If we can create some sort of opportunity for suppliers to also make money with we can kind of be that central figure in these transactions. And we said, you know, there's 25 years of uh, a large startup graveyard um, with that attempt. Let's go the opposite way. Mm -hmm. And so we went after distributors and manufacturers and said, hey, what's your problem? And we would literally, I remember getting in the car and we would drive around town and I would knock on doors and say, hey, look, we're trying to solve this problem. What do you think of this problem? And some people would invite us in and talk about it. And we'd said, uh, we said to a couple of manufacturers, what do you think about disrupting distribution? And they're like, never, we will never do it. We will never go outside of distribution. And then something just clicked and we're like, okay, we're not going to operate with any of the end users. Let's just stick distribution and manufacturing. And then from a sales side, I mean, I love all the salespeople in this industry and I love being able to help them solve their problems and their problems are growth. So remember when you first were telling me about this um, years ago. And you laid out the landscape of master distributors, distributors, but also like the manufacturing and just like how that ecosystem, like how it all kind of works. And it was a little eye opening for me because I had never been exposed to that side of the industry. So let's just take a second to kind of give a quick little masterclass on like how all that works. On how kind of this whole sourcing. Yeah. So, We'll go through the entire, let's do a bill yeah. of material problem or even MRO kind of use cases. I need seven valves versus 7,000. So Shell needs valves, right? And they go, okay, who do we buy valves from? And they'll send out a bill of material or an RFQ to their distribution partners. So sometimes they'll have multi-year agreements with certain companies. So they'll only use those companies. As distributors? Right. Yeah. And then other times they'll use whoever, whatever distributor kind of fits their needs at that point, or they'll send out four or five emails to distribution teams. What happens is, you know, the distribution team and inside sales rep will get that email and they'll look to see if they have their particular products in inventory or not. If they do not have an inventory, then they need to decide, well, who do I think has it in inventory? That could be another distributor. So coopetition or a master distributor. So master distributors often carry the things that distributors don't want to carry. For instances where, hey, I don't have this, I need to rely on these master distributors in order to get this particular valve right away. Do they hold just rare inventory or like large quantities of inventory? So they'll, they'll do large quantities, but it's large quantities of inventory that doesn't turn over often. Okay. And they'll only sell to distributors. Okay. And then oftentimes, maybe a master distributor can't fulfill that needs. And so the distributor will send it to the manufacturer. And then the manufacturer's inside sales team will go, do we have it? Do we not? And sometimes they have it and they don't want to sell it to them because the manufacturers are interested in selling 500 valves or 50,000 valves, not, not, not one. Yeah. And so one of our customers, kind of the use case and how we got inside of the existing workflows you know, he was a gentleman that started using robotics in order to manufacture valves. And he was like, okay, this industry does a really great job at 
using machines in order to manufacture valves. So our back office or our operations are set and we've tried to get them as uh, automated as possible, right? Well, as time went on, the front office grew and it became more and more manual, right? And it still exists today. Manual, people writing things down, taking a photo and texting it, that happens. Um, and so now the objective is, well, we've got the manufacturing process automated. How can we automate the front office? Because I've got to compete with China. I've got to figure out how to get leaner and leaner and leaner. And I'm, if I'm dealing with an end user who reduced my prices 10 years ago, well, my prices aren't going up, right? So where my margin needs to be had is on that front office space, right? Mm -hmm. And so he was saying, you know, Marty, I'm getting these emails from these distributors for five valves. I don't want to sell five valves. And oh, by the way, the cost per quote for me is $300. Well, my valves are $10. So if I sell five valves, I can sell $50 worth of valves, but it's costing me $300 to put this quote. We got to figure this out. Mm. And so <clears throat> it's kind of an interesting dynamic through the industry, I think, with this whole kind of sourcing sales process. Man, it's just... <laughs> It's so wild. It, it's so wild that it's, it's, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're spot on in terms of everybody has tried to come in, build, go into the end users, build a software, get them on board. I've seen that so many times. And a lot of times it, it kind of, their, their push is like, oh, we're just going to build the Amazon for, for yeah. kind of oil and gas, right? Yep. And I think that's proven extremely, extremely difficult, right? And I don't know if any of those have ever really had any sort of success or any sort of market share, to be honest with you? I don't think so. I know there's a prominent one that raised a bunch of capital um, that I think eventually turned themselves into an actual distributor mm. versus being kind of the Amazon for oil and gas. I think there's some traction happening in the chemical space where you can kind of create this market flow. Um, our belief is that that is not the proper way to solve it. I think what's going to happen is inside the in, these industrial spaces, if you kind of figure the evolution of how people buy and sell things went, you know, what did Amazon start 25 years ago, 30 years ago? Mm -hmm. So you think they're going to adopt 30-year-old technology? I don't think so, right? I think there's a, a good opportunity for a lot of these markets to skip that evolution of let's create some sort of e-commerce platform even for themselves and get right into ai and then with ai understanding pieces of equipment and understanding attributes so not only what it means to be a valve but also understanding a type of size these mm -hmm. different attributes of a, of a piece of equipment now that allows for systems to talk to systems right so if you, there's a shutdown or a turnaround happening, well, the data that is needed to figure out what's needed for that turnaround to happen properly is going to live either with an ERP, sometimes it's within a PDF file, right, on yeah. someone's desk, or a CAD system, right? But now um, with the ability of true artificial intelligence understanding these markets, this ERP can communicate with other ERPs throughout the entire supply chain. And this entire supply chain, if it works together, can start making decisions in order to take the time to kind of change some of the pieces of equipment during that downtime, right? From a month, six weeks into two weeks. And now they can do other things, right? And so there's so much value, I think, within AI if, if you can 
kind of really build it for these markets and understand the use cases of which you can surface that AI for. I was I mentioned that I had lunch with a guy earlier this week who uh, was in the pipe industry and he was ranting and raving about how awesome y'all's tech was. But he was he was kind of going on a tangent about uh, just how even today he feels like the entire RFQ RFP process is just like wildly antiquated, right? right. He's in a different business now, and so with his startup, with them being evaluated in the running for things, they're like, "Well, we have to put an RFP for two other companies." And he's like, "There's no other company that does what we do." And they're like, "Well, we can't move forward unless we have two more." And it's like, "Well, we're the only ones that do what we do." Do you feel like there's any uh, other challenges, whether it be culturally, whether it be technologically, on possibly like the EMP side that needs to change, where they could adopt some of this yeah. technology? I think so. Well, I mean, one of the challenges or some of the challenges that we've been through is kind of the data challenge and data challenges is in two ways. So one, there's a lot of unstructured data that is very disorganized. It doesn't make a lot of sense living in a lot of these ERPs, right? So even, you know, this microphone, let's say this microphone lived in my ERP. Well, it would leave my ERP as a black microphone or a microphone with a top on it or a microphone that you could have but it's the same thing described three different ways inside of ERP. Yeah. So I know there's been a lot of money spent by venture capital trying to solve just that data problem. Um, but there's also the data privacy problem. So it's, this is my data. What are you going to do with it? And I don't want anybody seeing this data. Well, in order to train AI, you need the data and you need private confidential types of data. And so I think that could be a cultural problem that may prevent a lot of opportunities or startups or even advancements to happen within these industries is, you know, who's going to see the data? Am I open to giving it yeah. to a particular use case and have AI trained on it? Yeah. Sure. So that could be an issue. So like I mentioned, so, you know, I'm, when, when I'm not sitting here podcasting, you know, I'm spending a lot of my time uh, talking with EMPs. Uh, and even some of the big well-filled service companies and technology companies about our new DW Insight platform. And some of the feedback that I've been getting as I'm talking to them, like, hey, what are you guys looking at from a technology perspective? What are your priorities, right? Trying to just kind of just keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening. And AI obviously keeps coming up in every single conversation. They're like, we're trying to wrap our heads around, like, we know there's an opportunity here with AI. We're trying to wrap our head around the actual use cases yes. of how can we apply this in the business. And with you guys building your own from the ground up. I think that that's particularly interesting to a lot of these organizations because if you were to leverage a ChatGPT, a Claude, a Bard, it is something that your data is potentially going to be used to train a much larger model. You don't want confidential information, sensitive information to kind of get out there into the broader ether, right? right. And so what advice would you have to those companies, even if it's you know some of these larger companies who are looking to start off with an AI, let's just call it even a project. Sure. Having built it from the ground up, what, what advice do you have? What challenges, opportunities? Clearly have? define the use case. So okay. we've defined specifically every single step that happens within this bill of material process from an inside sales rep, opening an email, reading the email, clicking the spreadsheet the spreadsheet opens up the description of how that spreadsheet can look the data in the spreadsheet the value of different data aspects within that spreadsheet and then we've had to go 
so there, there's kind of the description of the use case problem needs to be clear cut, fully described in detail, right? Then you need the data, right? And so, you know, you can train or fine tune some open source smaller models to fit your company and you have full control over that artificial intelligence. But then you need to train the data. Well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to do it? So you can't hire people from overseas in order to train complicated technical data, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when you're labeling it. So you need to find subject matter experts who will within, sit down. Within the company? Within the, I would do within the company. I think there's a large opportunity for people that maybe have retired and are looking for something to do and kind of give back to the community. Mm. And that's a lot of the gentlemen that we're using, retired um, PVF experts, 40 years in the oh, industry. Wow. And they give us a lot of advice, not only on our company, but they're helping us through this labeling process. And the only way for the AI to advance is to teach it what it needs to see. And in order to do that, you need the data and then you need the labeling in order mm. to do that. Do you think there should be any sort of, uh, I don't know, consortium? Uh, you, you've seen that time and time again, and I think that most of the time it ends up just being uh, people getting together and talking theoretical and nothing ever actually like comes out of it. But it's like, I mean, you see it with things like Hugging Face, yeah. you know, where you've got just these super large open source projects that people are contributing to, and in theory, you would think that you can get a lot of people in oil and gas or in energy to kind of do the same thing and have your best people contributing to certain projects. Obviously, there's always this fight over every time you have some JVs like that of like who actually owns it and right. who can use it and who can participate and all that kind of stuff. Do you think it makes more sense people just to, to do their projects internally and just, you know, fuck all the noise? Or do you think it makes sense for some of these companies to kind of come together or a third party to put something together to where it's like, hey, we can build some cool open source projects that's applicable to a lot of people? In this space i think it's going to be either uh the best value these companies will get is either to do it internally it's going to cost the fortune a mm -hmm. fortune so the demand for ai is very high mm -hmm. the amount of people that can actually do it compute power is getting more expensive compute power is expensive we have our own gpu believe it or not nice yeah so but the people that can do this there's not that many of them and here's another challenge and kind of getting more ingrained in the the kind of the AI community for people that actually build this out. Well, the question that has been posed to us is not many of those people want to work in this industry. Mm. Yeah. So now what happens? So these guys are making a million dollars a year at OpenAI, Google, Facebook, even if you were to pay them $3 million. So we, we've kind of presented some situations and we're like, we'll pay you double. No. I'm not, I will not work inside of oil and gas. And I was like, pay you triple. No. I was like, okay, so this is not about money. It's not about money. This is about building artificial. I want to build artificial intelligence. And I'm drawing the line in the sand over this moral conundrum that exists. What, what is the makeup of this AI engineer? Is this, is this typically like a software engineer or architect who's been doing this for a long time who has now developed a particular skill set around building ai models or is or is it something totally different so for us it's going to be um it's, we call them kind of eccentric mathematicians hmm. so it's people that understand different areas of mathematics and can apply it in these cutting edge ways to data 
in order to use not only the tools out there, but also to build um, our own uh, kind of mathematics based off of what we're looking to achieve. So it's going to be a mixture of data scientists, um, some people that are highly intelligent around the implications of AI, how it can be used within different use cases. And then kind of the other team that we have is more of a user experience team. And those three elements fitting together is what makes this come alive. Oh man, there's so much, there's so much more to talk about. I know we're a little pressed on, on time, unfortunately. Um, dude, I love talking about this stuff and I just, I can't tell you enough how excited I am to see the traction that you guys yeah, have. Yeah, thank you. Thank today. you guys for all your help. No, it was so it was huge. Just, it was just really cool to it's really cool to see because I know how hard you've been working behind the scenes. Yeah. But I think that this is a good lesson for other entrepreneurs that you want to solve a problem, truly understand the problems for the people that you're trying to solve them for. Yeah. Right. And I think that you've you've absolutely embodied that. So it's no surprise to me that it's that it's working. Yes. You know, so um it. in closing, so you guys raised some raised some capital recently. Yes. What, what are the plans now in terms of growth? So we just brought on a VP of operations literally awesome. two nights ago. Um, we're hiring a full stack engineer who understands some machine learning ops, but also has um, some good background in kind of user interfaces and how to really surface the value of the AI. Uh, further build out our AI team and then work with our customers to really make it come alive within their existing workflows and advance it from there. What's the for for those who are curious? What is the um? What's the what's the business model? How do you guys monetize? We're actually so we're trying to figure that out now. So there's one aspect where we can have a bill of material co-pilot, where in essence, if you're an inside sales rep, you get this bill of material, and you can use our AI within your spreadsheet to work. So we have that more license based mm -hmm. uh, model. But there's also a utility based model that we're thinking of to where if you figure. If you know, you're an end user and I'm a distributor and we have a multi-year agreement and you keep sending me the same stuff. Well, we can plug our AI within the email system, can read, understand what's being emailed. Therefore, I understand what you are wanting. I'm also connected to your ERP system so I know what you have, right, and the price it's at. As a result, we can um, capture email, do work on it, come up with an answer, import that into your ERP, send back to their system in a couple of seconds. Um, so we're trying to consider if a usage-based model works for us where we can just plug in the system and then depending upon how often mm -hmm. you use the AI or you tap into it, you pay us some sort of amount of money. Yeah. Um, but we're trying to figure that out. I feel like there would also be an opportunity for like percentage of upside, like in your example of the customer who turns down 50% of new business, like being able to quantify that and say, hey, we'll just take 10% of the upside that we were able to create for you. That's what we're, so we're working on that now is, so I think one of the next steps, so we like to sit behind our, our users' computers and watch them work, Yeah. right? And so I'll spend a couple hours and I'll go, let's go through this whole process and I'll write it down. But I think we're gonna get a stopwatch and go, okay, you have a bill of material, come in, go. Yeah. And then have them do work on on the way they normally do it. And then once, you know, ours surfaces to them, right, go. And then we can start doing proper calculations for this market to really consider the value that we're offering versus, you know, some made up value maybe that we think, right? It's awesome. <laughs> the, the, the cool thing is that you know you're delivering a massive amount of value yeah. from productivity standpoint, being able to get things done quicker, which is going to result in being able to actually answer more of these quotes which is gonna be more money which means that they can actually grow because like you mentioned 
they're not jacking the prices yes. up. Yes, there is one more nuance. I don't know if we have the time. Yeah. So, yeah, here, so this is what's interesting to me. So obviously the sales and the use that use case is very interesting. So I absolutely love everything about it. But if you figure what's traveling from an end user to a distributor, right? So it's a description of a thing, right? But that description of a thing has uh, the the material inside of it, right? And so no one within this industry has been able to capture the amount of material being requested in a total market, right? So you're saying like maybe like it's 50% steel, 50% right. something Nickel, else? Nickel, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. And so if I'm, a, if I'm a manufacturer and I'm getting this large bill of material, 10,000 lines, right? I need to track not only what type of material is being requested three years from now, right? So I can kind of stock up, but I also need to purchase nickel in order to manufacture my valves. Mm. Yeah. And so now with a large amount of data, you can start getting a, an understanding of, hey, you know, mm -hmm. you've had $3 billion worth of quotes. You haven't been able to properly gauge how much nickel you're going to need in two years. Well, now you need to go on the nickel market and hedge against what, right? You start seeing how this <laughs> yeah. works. So it's like they don't have like, that now. It's like part inventory yeah. management, right? Right. To, to, because the worst thing in the world is to just have inventory on your shelves, right? So you can better use that for better, more effective cash flow. But then, like you said, yeah, tie into right? hedging in the commodity markets exactly. for things like nickel. That to me is interesting. That is really interesting. So I hope you crack we'll see that what too. <laughs> <laughs> that, would be, that would be so wild. Marty, this has been awesome, like yes. always, dude. If you Thank guys you. Uh, are listening, you want to, the website's industrialdatalabs.com. You're on LinkedIn, so we mm -hmm. can find you there. What's your email? Marty at industrialdatalabs.com. Cool. So if you guys have any questions, reach out to Marty. He's the man. Take, take a second, leave us a rating review, share this with your friends or anybody you think that they would enjoy this episode, and we'll catch you guys on the next episode. Cut, 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 cut.